Well, we're continuing with uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, and I'm reading tonight from chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive God's mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Well, tonight I'm beginning with the last verse of the reading, which I think is the most shocking verse. God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. These are difficult words to understand. Let us ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, you inspired these words of Paul the Apostle in our Bible. Please, by the same Spirit, help us to understand them, to grasp them, to receive them, and to know you through them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Romans chapter 11 and verse 32. Well, I wonder if you experienced culture shock when you heard those words read. When we go somewhere and find that people live a different way to what we're used to, we experience culture shock. It can be when we go overseas, or it might be here in Australia. Culture shock, as we call it, happens because of culture gap. We're shocked when we meet the gap. And I think we're possibly more shocked when we are at home and culture gap intrudes itself on us. It breaks in on us. It shocks us. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. This culture gap, this cultural dissonance, is a great shock for those of us who live in the Western world 
when we hear these words. For one of our deepest assumptions is that of our own absolute free will. And we regard any interference with our free will as a threat to our liberty. And our difficulty in dealing with COVID restrictions is an example of this. How dare the government restrict our free will? We experience minor culture shock when the alien action is a minor one, like people not knowing how to form queues or when we can't find a good coffee. But it's a major culture shock when our deepest assumptions are challenged as they are by these words from Paul's letter to the Romans. Perhaps because we're not aware of our deepest assumptions until they are questioned or contradicted by a shocking statement. God has bound everyone over to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. How dare God interfere? How God dare restrict us? How God dare to bind people over to disobedience, whatever that means. But you need to remember that sometimes big cultural shocks are good for us. This is Reconciliation Week in Australia. And for 10 years or more, I've been challenging Australians to recognise that they live on stolen land that when the British landed in 1788, this land was already inhabited by the indigenous people who had a civilization over 30,000 years old with its own cultural and technical life, its own way of caring for the land, its own values and languages. And I remember talking with one person in Western Australia and after my presentation, that person said, yes, there were native people on the farm when we were growing up. I often wondered where they came from. I felt like saying, they probably wondered where you came from. Others have responded, but we've already apologized. To which I reply, we have apologized for the stolen generation. We have not yet apologized for stolen land. The idea that we Westerners are living on stolen land is a big cultural shock and we're yet to come to terms with it. But in the study of history, we also find some minor cultural shocks. I thought that when the missionaries caring for indigenous people made them wear clothes and gave them Western names, that was cultural arrogance. I've since learned that one reason they made them wear clothes was to make other Australians to realise that they were people, not animals, and thus to make them more reluctant to kill them. And I've just learnt over this weekend that sometimes they gave, gave Indigenous people Western names so the farmers for whom they worked would then be more likely to pay them wages. My point is that some cultural shocks are good for us. What about this conflict between our Western assumption of free will and these words from St. Paul, 
God has bound everyone over to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. Well, let's think first about our assumption about free will. It's not an absolute, is it? I cannot remake my past. I cannot make myself into another person. I cannot undo my having existed. I cannot exchange my birth parents. Here's another issue. We also learn that we actually have to restrain our free will in order to relate to other people and respect their free will. The absolute free will of an individual could destroy a society. It could destroy every relationship. And we need to tackle the question, free will to do what? For example, we may be free to set our own excellent moral values, but find it difficult to implement them. We have more freedom in choosing than in acting, in doing. Further, our free will cannot always enable us to escape the consequences of our actions for ourselves or for others. And if you reflect on your life, you'll realize that's a considerable lack of freedom. And if there is a God, if there is a creator and maker of everything, a God who made us and who is responsible for us, a God who is our judge, then we would expect some restrictions on our free will. I'm often amused when people say, why doesn't God do something about this? And then when he does act, they say, how dare God interfere with our lives? We in the West have taken individual free will to its most extreme position. In the words of James Watson, who helped discover the double helix form of DNA, if we don't play God, who will? And we now put pressure on young children to exercise their free will, their independence, and create their own identity, their own moral values. And we reward those who don't follow the values of their parents or their community. These seem to us to be the most authentic choices. A nice way to pressure people in the exercise of their free will. The question in the Bible is, do human beings possess a powerful enough free will to turn away from what is wrong, to turn away from sin, to turn to God and then love God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength and love their neighbour as themselves? The question in the Bible is, do human beings possess a powerful enough free will to turn away from what is wrong, from sin, to turn to God and then to love God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength and love their neighbour as themselves. Of course, we have free will to choose what clothes we'll put on each day. But do we have free will for the most significant actions of our lives? 
And the Bible's answer to this question is no, we do not. Without God's forgiveness of our sins, without God enabling us to turn to him and trust him, without God's work within us transforming our lives, we cannot do this. And even with God's help, I might say, we cannot do this perfectly. Christians are constantly painfully aware of the yawning gap between who they want to be, what they want to be, and the present reality of their lives. Every day we say to God, forgive us our sins. And do we not find this same reality in our world? That is, free will is used badly. Some justify domestic violence, others don't justify it, but do it anyway. Governments and organizations are good at commissioning reviews, but so often fail to implement them. Economic development, you think, should lead to sharing our wealth and progress with others, but too often leads to selfish policies and selfish practices. It's very hard to love our neighbor, and our world is full of examples of ways in which we fail to do that. We develop ever more effective weapons of warfare in order to ensure peace and then use them in war. We celebrate our freedom, but have to pass countless laws in order to protect others from our freedom. We boast of national values, but find them impossible to implement, even at the most basic level. If there's an international crisis, we might promise support and then not deliver it, or provide support for the immediate problem, but not for the long-term solution. We find it very hard to exercise our free will and love our neighbor. As Darcy says in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, I have been a selfish being all my life, in practice, though not in principle. And in all this, we suffer the consequences of the failure of our wills to choose, plan, and achieve the good. We suffer the consequences of our sin-damaged wills in not knowing what the good is. And we suffer the consequences of our most significant failure of will to love God and to love our neighbor. Parents often tell me that the one thing they try to teach young people is consequences. If you don't eat proper food, you'll get ill. If you don't get enough sleep, you'll be very tired. If you don't study, you won't pass your exams. I remember that one. If you take too much alcohol or unprescribed drugs, you'll lose self-control and others may take advantage of you. Well, here are God's consequences. If you don't love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will damage your relationship with me, you will damage yourself, 
You will damage your understanding, your thinking. You'll damage your emotions, your loving. You'll damage your will, damage your effectiveness, damage your family and friends, damage your neighbours, damage others, damage your work, damage your community, and damage your world. This is what Paul means by God has bound everyone over to disobedience. That is, to the consequences of their disobedience and of the consequence of the disobedience of others. And we see the awful results of this in ourselves, in our lives, our families, our friends, our communities, our nation and our world, as I have already shown you. Here are God's consequences. God has bound everyone over to disobedience. But this is not the end of the story. God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. What does this mercy look like? It looks like Jesus Christ. And it looks like Jesus Christ on the cross. God's mercy looks like Jesus Christ, his own son, his only son. And God's mercy looks like Jesus Christ on the cross. Here are some words from earlier in Paul's letter to the Romans. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or we might use the words of the particular verse we're looking at tonight, while we were bound over in disobedience, Christ died for us. Paul goes on, since we've now been justified by his blood, that is by his death, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. By the everyone and the all, Paul here means the Jews, that is the Jewish people, and the Gentiles, that is those who aren't Jewish people, he's been writing about in, verse, in the previous verses. He explains that God's plan is the same for Jewish people, God's own people chosen in Old Testament times, 
and for Gentiles. They both were disobedient and they both received mercy. Verse 30, just as you who at one time disobedient to God, that is you Gentiles, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so too they have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For Paul puts the pattern of God's working in verses 25 following. Israel, that is God's people, has experienced a hardening in heart until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies for the sake of the Gentiles. But as far as election, God's choice is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And we find this to and fro between Jews and Gentiles being converted to Christ, even in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, God-fearing Jews are converted to Christ. In Acts chapter 8, the deacon Philip is preaching in Samaria and then to an Ethiopian. So then their Gentiles are hearing the good news of Jesus and responding. And in Romans 10, a Roman soldier and a centurion is converted to Christ. In Acts 11, Jews and Gentiles in Antioch are converted. And in Acts 16, the gospel goes to Europe, first to Thessalonica and then to remaining places in Greece. And by the end of Acts, the story of the Acts of the Apostles in the early church, Paul is in Rome, the center of the Roman Empire, preaching both to Jews and also to Gentiles. When I was first a Christian, I came from a non-Christian family. I began going to church and uh, I used to hear the Bible read and I thought to myself, well, God had plan A and then plan B. Plan A involved the Jews, but that didn't work. So then he had plan B, which involved those who weren't Jews, the nations, the Gentiles. But uh, I soon learnt, because somebody explained it to me from the Bible, that actually there's one plan which includes Jews and Gentiles alike. For God has bound over everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all, Jews and Gentiles alike. What a contrast, disobedience and mercy. And actually this letter is full of those contrasts, disobedience, mercy, wrath, grace, death, life, severity, kindness, hostility, Peace, hatred, love, disobedience, and mercy. And God in his mercy turns our wills, changes our wills, so that we turn to him, admit our mistakes, ask him to transform our wills, so that we can begin to love him 
and to love our neighbour for his glory. What we're reading about here in Romans is the world's greatest polyethnic, multinational, multicultural, long-lasting and then eternal body of people, God's people. All equal in the sight of God as human beings. All equally naturally disobedient to God and all objects of God's mercy and kindness. All equally saved by God's love and grace through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, for Paul, is the news of the world. This, for Paul, is world history. I remember hearing a few years ago, we don't always think what the media want us to think, but we certainly think about what the media wants us to think about. But isn't that true? Our minds are full each day of what the media brings to our attention. But what the media fails to do is what God does for us in the Bible, to remind us that there is a God, that God sent his son to be our savior, that God is creating a people for himself, that God is being kind and gracious to people who do not know them, and calling them to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That God's will is to call people from every tribe and language and tongue and people to know him through the Lord Jesus Christ. That God is making the world's greatest polyethnic, multinational, multicultural, long-lasting and then eternal body of people, his own people, his precious people, the Church of Jesus Christ, the temple of his Holy Spirit. God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Let us pray. Gracious God, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, who trust in his death on the cross, Thank you again for your mercy to us, the mercy with which you've surrounded us every day of our lives, and your mercy which is eternal. And Heavenly Father, we pray for those who don't yet know your kindness and goodness and mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, in your compassion, Bring them to know you through Christ. Bring them to know that their sins and weaknesses and failures are forgiven by Jesus' death on the cross. And enable them to receive your gift, your free gift of eternal life and the gift of your spirit and the wonderful gift of joining your people. Please hear our prayers for we ask them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.